Luke 11, verse 9 is where we are this morning. And I'm going to start by saying something that might get me into a little trouble with some of you. Um, If so, if you passionately disagree with what I'm about to say, please come talk to me. I'm not going to be mad at you for disagreeing with me, but I'd like to know if I'm wrong. And if I'm wrong, to have that pointed out by somebody who loves me and and vice versa. If, If you're wrong, I'd love to be able to tell you why you're wrong. But uh, here, here you go. Here you go. And I mean that. I, I mean, you know, let's dialogue. We're part of the same family. But here we go. You ready? I think most of the time, the worst thing on television you can possibly watch is religious programming. Yeah. Uh, yeah thank you. Yeah, somebody agrees with me. But why, why would I say that? I mean, let, let's, let's face it. Most of what you see on TV, on streaming, whatever platform you happen to watch, most of it, 95% of it, is probably the intellectual and spiritual equivalent of eating stale Twinkies, right? It's not good for you. You don't know why you're even eating it. And yet, I'd rather you watch most of that stuff than, say, Trinity Broadcasting. And just to be sure, I actually went, I looked up their, their daily lineup just to see, am I right? Do I still feel this way? Because it's been a few years since I've watched that stuff. And, and there actually are a few good preachers on there. Tony Evans, for instance. If you, the more Tony Evans you listen to, the better you're off you're going to be because he preaches the Word of God. Uh, David Jeremiah, another good, solid Bible teacher. You could probably pull out one or two other names and, and argue for them. But for the most part, guys, I mean, here's the thing. When you eat stale Twinkies, you know you're not eating good food, right? You're just sitting there saying, I'm just putting stuff in, right? I'm gaining weight that's not going to do me any good. I'll probably eat a salad tomorrow to make up for this. Same way when, when you watch something on Netflix or on network TV, and you're sitting there, and you know, you know you're not expanding your brain. You know you're not growing in Christ, and you're probably thinking, yeah, I probably should turn this off and go for a walk or open a, open a book or, or talk to my family. You know that, right? The problem is a lot of people, a lot of Christians who sit and watch religious TV, they think they're drinking a protein shake, and they're not. Now, why do I say that? We're in this series called Out of Context. We're we're looking at the verses in the Bible that Christians love to quote, but they don't really mean what those Christians think they mean. They use the Bible to say things the Bible doesn't actually say by taking it out of context. And today's verse is one that I knew I needed to include because back in October when I was planning the whole year's sermon schedule, I I got to this series and I knew, okay, one of of those Sundays has to be on at least one of the verses that the prosperity gospel guys love. And let's be honest, no preacher that I know of says, yes, I'm a preacher of the prosperity gospel, but that's what they are. I mean, Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, Paula White, T.D. Jakes, Joel Osteen, none of them would say I'm a prosperity gospel preacher, but that's what they are. And I could name others as well. They take verses out of scripture, out of context, to convince you that God's whole job is to give you what you want in life, to give you the things you want, to make your life what you want it to be. They make it sound like the goal of being a Christian is to be healthier and wealthier than your neighbors, to live large so that everyone will say, oh, his father loves him. I I want in on some of that action. And and it, it turns the almighty sovereign God of the universe into nothing more than a cosmic butler. And it turns our self-centeredness and our greed that we just have in us innately because of our sin nature. No, it turns them from things we need to grow beyond into things that God blesses 
Because it's good for us to want more stuff. It's good for us to be unhappy with our circumstances because God wants you to ask him for big things. It ignores the many, many, many things in the scriptures that tell us how God uses our sufferings. God uses our trials. God uses our pain to bring about glorious results. And instead, it makes it sound like if you're struggling right now, it's probably your fault because God doesn't want you to be there. Because so, so if God doesn't want you to be there and you're there anyway, obviously you're doing something wrong, right? Now think about it. Who, out of all the Bible, who are we most supposed to emulate? Who are we most supposed to be like? Come on, we're in church. Who's the answer? Jesus, that's right. Yeah, yeah. When Jesus was here, was he walking around seeking his best life now? No, he was giving his life away. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not wrong to enjoy the blessings God has given you. If right now you have perfect health, go out and enjoy it. If you have more money than you need to survive, Thank God for it. If you have friends and family who are close by you, who you have loving relationships with, praise the Lord for those things. All those things are good, but none of those things are the point of life. And I want to make something clear. I don't like criticizing other pastors. This is something I rarely do. Because I know that any pastor in this city could could critique me and could come up with 9,000 things that I could do better. And, And I'm ultimately not the judge of any of these guys, any of these men or women. God alone is their judge. So I'm not, I'm not commenting on the truth of their Christianity. I'm not saying they're not really believers. God makes that judgment. I'm not even saying we need to burn them at the stake as heretics. I'm just saying, I am, aren't you glad? I'm, I'm just, my job is not to stand up here and, and try to keep you from falling asleep for 30 minutes a week. My job is to shepherd this congregation. And, and if I'm your shepherd then I've got to tell you where the wolves are and avoid those people. Avoid listening to those people because they will steer you astray. So let's look at one of those verses that that preachers like that often misuse and, and see what it really, really means. Luke 11 verse 9 says, And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Now right there, If that's the only verse in the Bible you'd ever heard, and you just heard it for the first time today, you'd probably say, well, Jeff, that that goes against everything you just said, because it makes it sound like God wants to give me exactly what I ask for. He can't say no to me. I'm just too doggone adorable. He will give me everything I ask for. In fact, he says it three different times. But you have to read it in context. First of all, you have to know, if you know the Bible at all, you know there's story after story after story in the scriptures of men and women who were incredible faith warriors, people who knew God and loved God more than you and I can ever dream, and they came to God with personal, perf- perfectly reasonable requests, and God said no. Perfect example, the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians 12, he tells this story. He said, I had this thorn in my flesh. He doesn't say what it is. Maybe an illness, maybe a loved one was dying, maybe it was criticism from others or persecution. We don't know. Something that he called a messenger of Satan. So it was something bad. And he went to God three times and he said, Lord, please take this away from me. And three times God said, no, I'm not gonna take it away because you're better when you're weak like this. I can, I can show my strength through you. My grace is enough. 
Now, if Paul the Apostle, the guy who wrote more than half the New Testament and planted churches all over the place and had no fear, if he was standing right here today, would you have the guts to come up to him and say, hey, Paul, you know, your problem is you didn't have enough faith. You just didn't know how to pray. No, of course not. There's a story, in fact, right before Luke 11, which we're about to study, the story that comes right before Luke 11 is of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, three of Jesus' closest friends on earth. And Jesus goes to visit them. And Martha comes to Jesus and says, Lord, would you tell my worthless little sister Mary to get into the kitchen and help me make supper? She's just sitting around listening to you instead of doing what she should do. Perfectly reasonable request. Jesus says no. This is a woman who was emotionally closer to Jesus than you and I will ever be this side of heaven, and Jesus turned her down. Now, does that mean that he was lying when he said, whatever you ask for, you'll get, and whatever you knock, whenever you knock, I'll open the door, and, and whenever you seek, you'll find? Well, you have to read the rest of the chapter. See, the whole chapter, not just that verse, the whole chapter, at least the whole first part of the chapter is about prayer. What is Jesus trying to teach us about prayer? This is key. Luke 11, 1. We're going to start with verse 1. We're going to go through verse 13. We're going to take a little detour in a little bit, so stay with me. But Luke 11, verse 1 says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. If you read the New Testament, the four Gospels especially, you probably, you probably notice that the disciples are often like, five or six steps behind Jesus and really slow to pick up on what he's saying. And they, they usually get it wrong. This is one of those rare cases where they get it right. They've seen Jesus go away and pray by himself. And finally, one of them has the, has the intelligence to go up to him and say, Lord, you've got to teach us how to do that, which is the right thing to ask. So Jesus begins to teach them how to pray. Here's what he says. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Now, again, here's another moment where you've got to read scripture in context. He says, when you pray, say, and then he says a prayer. And if that was the only thing you read about prayer, you'd think, oh, the Lord wants us to pray that same prayer every single time. But we know that's not true. How do we know that? Because there are dozens of other prayers in the Bible, in the New Testament, by, the, by Jesus and the apostles. And there's only one out of all those prayers that sounds remotely like this one. So Jesus isn't saying you have to use these exact words. He's saying, here's a way to pray. If you want to know how to pray, this is what it looks like. This is what it sounds like. This is the model way to pray. What he's doing here is he's teaching us to pray like a worshiper. We're not two businessmen getting together and haggling out a deal. We're not at a used car lot and we're trying to figure out how to get that, you know, that 2009 Civic for less than the guy wants to give it to us for. You know, it's not like that at all. We're not trying to make a trade. We're not trying to make a transaction. We are worshipers before our holy God. And we need to go to him with that attitude. So I mentioned earlier that there's one other time in the Bible where this prayer is prayed again, or a prayer similar to it, and that's in Matthew 6. We know it is the Lord's Prayer. And we're about to say it together in the King James Version. If you didn't grow up with the King James, just listen. It sounds beautiful. But before that, I want to show you what Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 5. So this is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. 
For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. See, back in those days, the way you impressed people wasn't by uh, having shiny white teeth and and six-pack abs and driving a fancy car. The way you impressed people was by pretending to be more righteous than you were. Now, that's not the case anymore. We have different ways of showing off. But all Jesus is saying here, it still applies today, your prayer life is not about you. Your prayer life is not about you. That's a hard thing for us to absorb. He goes on in verse 7, and he says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. So now he's talking about their Gentile neighbors, their non-Jewish pagan neighbors who didn't believe in their God. They believed in the the gods of of the Greek and Roman pantheon. You know, we learned about this in in junior high English, right? Zeus and and Aphrodite and and Hermes and all these guys, right? Uh, Remember those stories? Do you remember those gods were not virtuous? Those gods didn't love you? So if you were a pagan in those days, you didn't go before gods that were on your side. So you figured, I need to deceive the gods into giving me what I want. I need to manipulate them somehow. And so the way pagans prayed, they would come up with some kind of formula, some kind of magical uh, incantation that they thought might work. And they just pray it over and over again, thinking eventually Zeus is going to get so annoyed with me, he'll just give me what I want. And what Jesus is saying here is, it's not about how long you pray. It's not about the exact words you pray. It's about the state of your heart. And then he says, verse 8, and this is something that's really going to take your breath away if you don't know it. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. So understand, when we pray, God is not taking down information right? We're not informing God about something he doesn't already know. God's not up there with a, with a clipboard saying, oh, I had no idea that Nikki was sick. I'll get right on that. God knows what you need before you ask him. And after he said all those things, then he gives us the Lord's Prayer. Now, if you know this, if you know this by heart, say it along with me. You ready? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So how does Jesus start that model prayer with the word hallowed? It's not a word we use a lot today, but it simply means honored. Lord, I I give you honor. Come to him as a worshiper. Come to him first as a worshiper. Then thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's a way of acknowledging, Lord, I've got this laundry list of things that are keeping me up at night and I want to bring them to you, but I know that you're trying to rescue an entire world. So before I get to my agenda, I want to get to your agenda. I want to pray for the lost people I know. I want to pray for the the neighbors who are struggling. I want to pray for my church and the other churches in our community. I want to pray for Christians overseas who are struggling with persecution and and martyrdom and poverty and and negative circumstances. I want to pray, Lord, for your kingdom to come and your will to be done. And then and only then does he say, give us this day our daily bread, which is another way of saying, whatever's keeping you up at night, give it to God. And that comes third. Now, please hear me. That doesn't mean that every prayer has to have this specific little outline, like it's a meeting agenda where, okay, I can't pray anything until I've first hallowed and and prayed for his kingdom. That's not what this is about, but simply to say, come before him with a heart of worship. Because what it comes down to is prayer is not about you making God do what he doesn't want to do. 
And prayer is not about you getting God onto your agenda. It's about getting you ready to do his will. Now, you might be saying, Jeff, that's not what I've been told. And and frankly, if I can't get God to do something he wasn't going to do anyway, then why should I pray at all? Which is a very valid question. And the best answer I've heard comes from J.D. Greer. I read it uh, just a few weeks ago. I said, boy, this is perfect. So let me see if it works for you like it worked for me. Here's how J.D. Greer explains why we should pray. He says, number one, does God know the day you're going to die? Yes. Is there anything you can do to change that? No. So if I just today stop eating and never eat another bite, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to die. So if I stop eating and I die of starvation, does that mean that God knew I was going to starve to death on that day? And so he, he willed me into starving myself to death so that I would die on that day? Or does that mean that once God saw the choice that I made, he retroactively changed my date of death so it would be the day that I started to death? You know the answer to that question? Stop asking stupid questions and just eat. And here's how that applies to prayer. We know that God knows exactly what we need before we pray it. We know that he's a good God, so he's going to do the right thing, even if we don't tell him to do the right thing. And yet we look all through the scriptures and we see these amazingly mighty things that God does in answer to prayer. And some people in this room, I guarantee you, they're too humble to do it, but they could stand up and give testimony right now of incredible things that they've seen God do in answer to prayer. So how do those two truths work together? Stop asking stupid questions and just pray. All we know is there are times when God chooses to let us pray his will into existence. There are mighty and amazing things he wants to do. There's people he wants to heal miraculously. There are lost souls he wants to bring home. There are churches he wants to revive, whole communities he wants to turn around. And it's not like he won't do it if we don't pray, but, it, but he gives us the opportunity to pray his will, his amazing will into existence. Just shut up and pray. That, that's all. That's all we need to know. Pray as worshipers of a holy God. And the second thing Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to show us how to pray like someone who has access, like a humble worshiper, but also like a bold person who has access to the throne, who belongs in the presence of God. As he goes on, and we're back in Luke 11 now, 11 verse 5, and he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him, and he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Pray like someone who has access. When I was in college, I lived in in a dorm complex called the Quadrangle. It doesn't exist anymore. They tore it down a few years ago. But I lived in Taub Hall, and right behind that was Oberholzer, where we had our cafeteria. And on one side of the cafeteria, there was the the regular cafeteria food, you know, the, the stuff that the cafeteria staff puts out there and says, there, you paid, now eat. And the other side, if you didn't like what that was, there was a grill and you could go and get a a hamburger or a hot dog or, or, you know, hot roast beef sandwich or grilled cheese or whatever. And so about four times out of five, we'd go there. Well, I remember one night I was late. Class ran late or something. I came home, all my friends had already eaten. So I went over to the grill side by myself. And all of a sudden I noticed everything was different. 
They weren't cooking up hamburgers and hot dogs. They had big old juicy steaks on that grill. And they, they had these big fluffy baked potatoes and these huge dinner rolls. And then I noticed that the guys in front of me, and they were all guys in the line in front of me, were huge. And that's when I remembered one of the other dorms in the quadrangle was called Bates Hall, and that's where the athletes stayed. And after 6.30 in the grill side of the Oberholzer, it was the athlete's training table. I had unwittingly gone into the athlete's training table. And right then, as I'm working out these little details in my head, the guy right in front of me turns around and looks down, looks way down. And I recognized him. His name was Byron Smith. He was the shooting guard on our basketball team. He's now the, the head basketball coach at Prairie View A&M. And he looks down at me and he goes, boy, you in the wrong place. <laughs> and then he kind of smiled as if to say, I'm just messing with you, kid, but seriously, get out. And he was right. I didn't belong there. And I, I left. I went and got whatever slop they were serving on the other side of Oberholzer. But I say, I tell that story because I know there are Christians who are so convinced of their own unworthiness that they would say, yeah, I can't really trouble God with this. Maybe if it was something big, yeah. Then, then I would dare to pray. But I, I, I'm not worthy to stand in his presence. I'm not, I can't possibly go and talk to the Lord of the universe. And, and Jesus answers to that with this, this little parable we just read about the friend at midnight. And the key word in that whole parable is, is in verse 8, the word impudence. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. We don't use the word impudence a lot. Another word for it is shamelessness. So put it this way, if you update this uh, parable to today, if you were having a party at your house and, and you ran out of bread and, and you, were, you were serving BLTs or whatever, uh, and, and you thought, well, you know, I bet, I bet my pastor's got, he's got a loaf of bread in his house, and it's after midnight. How many of you would, don't raise your hand, but how many of you would actually come and knock on my door after, I bet none of you would. You'd be ashamed to. And you know that I'm human. You know that if you get me out of bed for bread, I'm going to be like, get your stupid bread and get out of here. Because I'm not a happy guy after midnight. That's just not the way it works. And, and yet, if you're my four-year-old, I don't have one, but when I did, four years old, you're not ashamed to wake me up in the middle of the night for anything. Ironically, my daughter, who's much older than four now, actually had to wake me up at, at one in the morning this last week because the, the smoke alarm in her bedroom was chirping, which only happens at one in the morning. That's the way they're engineered. And, and she physically couldn't reach it. And, and it took the two of us, you know, two college graduates trying to figure this thing out at one in the morning. And, and I, I just laughed because we're, we're, we're talking about this right now. She came to me because I'm her dad. She has access. Jesus is saying, you, you may not feel worthy. You combine this with Hebrews 4, which says, Jesus, our great high priest, has gone ahead of us and has opened access for us through his death on the cross. Therefore, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. So the right kind of pray, the right way to pray is to pray humbly like a worshiper, but also to pray boldly like someone who belongs there in the presence of God. And then third and finally, we need to pray like someone who has faith. Verse 9, we're back where we started. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? 
If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Pray like someone who has faith. Recognize that God is is better than the best mother, the best father who ever existed. All of you who are parents here today, or all of you who had parents, so that's everybody, does a good parent do whatever they have to do to provide for their kids? Yeah, that's job number one. If, If there's no food in the house and you've got a sandwich you give that sandwich to your kids to let them divide it up because your job is to sacrifice whatever you have to sacrifice to make sure they've got what they need. And Jesus is looking at the the men and women in that crowd and saying, listen, y'all do that even though you're sinners, even though from birth you've been selfish and and greedy. And, And you think about God who is perfect, God who loves more than you could ever love your child, God who can do all things, don't you think he is even more likely to give his children the things they need? So don't come to him with a state of doubt. Don't come to him with this idea of, well, you know, I'm going to pray just because I've been told it works, but I don't believe anything's going to come of it. No, like we sang earlier, there is nothing that our God can't do. There's not a mountain that he can't move. You come to him in faith. You come to him knowing God can do whatever he wants and he wants to give you everything you need. Now let's flip that argument around. You might say, well, then how come sometimes I don't get what I prayed for? Well, again, if you've ever, if you had good parents or if you've been a parent, is there a time, are there times ever when a good parent says no to a request of his or her child? Yeah. Absolutely. So you're a mom and you've got a a toddler son who's running a a high fever and and you call the doctor and you say, I I can't, I mean, Tylenol is not working. What do I do? He says, bring him in. We're going to hit him with some strong IVs and we'll we'll knock this infection out and he'll be be well in the morning. And your little boy hears that and he's like, mama, don't take me to the doctor. I don't want to go to the doctor. Please, please, please don't take me to the doctor. Do you take him to the doctor? Yeah, you take him to the doctor. In fact, you hold him down while the doctor brings this big, ugly needle and sticks it in his arm. You're a horrible person, but you do it because you love that child. At eight years old, he comes home from elementary school and says, Mom, I'm the only boy in my class that doesn't have an iPhone. Can I have an iPhone? And you say, no. No, you, you are not ready for that kind of access to the, to the stuff that comes in on those little handheld devices. You may not have an iPhone. I don't care if you think I'm the worst mother in the world. I'm doing this because I love you. He's 16 years old. He comes home having failed his algebra test because he cheated and his teacher caught him. Principal says he's got three days of in-school suspension he comes home and he says, you know, uh, I know that you know our principal. He's a member of our church and, you know, you know him on a first name basis. So why don't you call him up and uh, see if you can get this reversed, right? And, and while you're at it, why don't you get him to punish that teacher? Because she's against me. Do you do that? I sure hope not. No, you say no. Why? Because you hate your child? No, because you love your child. Because you love your whole community and you don't want to unleash on the community a child who's raised in a home where he never gets told no. And if that's true of you and me who are imperfect at best, how much more true is it that 
there are times when God has to tell us no, even though we beg him with all our hearts. Lord, if you love me, you'll give me this. No, I can't do it. And I know there are probably people in this room, and I don't know who they are, but there are probably people in this room who would say, I get that in concept, but there have been some things I've asked for, maybe some things I'm asking for right now that are so reasonable. There's no way that God shouldn't give them to me. I was in my house and the floodwaters were rising and I didn't have flood insurance. And all I, was, all I said was, Lord, just don't let the water get in my house. And it got in my house anyway. You know, my, my company started uh, to downsize and I was like, okay, Lord, just don't let them cut me. And they did anyway. And my daughter went off on a trip and, and I said, Lord, please keep her safe. And then she got in a wreck and, and went into the hospital anyway. So why would God say no to something perfectly reasonable, unselfish? Why? And, and I'll be honest with you, I don't know. And anybody who claims to know the complete will of God for you is lying, unless their name is Jesus Christ. But here's, here's how I work through those kinds of questions in my own life. This might be the most important thing you hear today, so listen up. For me, whenever I, 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 I see things in the world that don't make sense, whenever I see things that happen to my life that I can't, I can't make sense of, the cross and the empty tomb are always the answer for me. So if my heart starts to say, well, you know, God doesn't really understand. He's, he's just, he's not thinking of you. I, I remember that Jesus actually lived on earth, that he experienced poverty. He experienced pain. He experienced grief. He experienced uh, unfair accusations. I, I remember that God the Father watched his own son die on a cross. Whatever grief I ever experienced in this life, it won't go higher than that kind of grief. God knows what we've been through. And then if I say, okay, he gets it, but maybe he doesn't really care about me because there's 7 billion people on this earth and I'm sure a lot of them are more important in the ultimate plan of God than me. So maybe he's just, he's busy with them and I'm, I'm low on the priority list. And then I remember the cross. The cross, the message of the cross is God loves you so much, he'd rather die for you than spend eternity without you. Don't tell me God doesn't care about you. He doesn't need to prove it anymore. He laid down his life for you. He went through hell on earth for you. When you didn't even ask him to, when you'd done nothing, when you and I had done nothing to merit that kind of love, he did it for us. And, and if I start to say, okay, God cares, sure, and God knows, but maybe he's just not that strong. Maybe God's doing his best and the world's still a mess and that's the problem because God just can't get it done. But then I look at the empty tomb where he did the impossible, where he defeated death, where he conquered our unconquerable foe, and I realize, no, there's, there's really nothing he can't do. See, at the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus defeated death, sin, evil, on my behalf forever, changed my life in a radical way, gave me a future that the world can't take away. So now he's got nothing more he could ever have to prove to me. And that means that no matter what happens, I can't doubt him. Rationally speaking, I can't doubt his love or his grace or his strength. And so when I pray and nothing seems to happen or when some random bulldozer comes and plows through my life or, or when I look at things in the world and see what a mess it is, what I say to myself is, yeah, I don't get it, 
Just like that little kid doesn't know why he has to get a shot or why he can't have an iPhone or why, he's, why his mom won't go to bat for him with the principal. I don't get it now, but I'll get it someday. And in the meantime, I know because of the cross and the empty tomb that God knows what he's doing and what he's doing is for good. I don't have to be proven anymore. I don't have to ask him why anymore. I just trust. I just trust. And can you trust Jesus that way? That's the way to pray. Pray from a place of faith.